70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, I'm Dave Baywin, a KBS World Radio show fan from Malaysia. I started tuning in to KBS World Radio show on August 17, 2021 using the Kong app. I fell in love with One Fine Day with Inapa and K-pop connection from the very first day I started tuning in and ever since then I've been tuning in religiously every day, rain or shine. Uh, you know before I started listening to KBS World Radio Show, I was not into K-pop and I knew nothing about K-pop. But uh, after listening to One Fine Day and K-pop connection for 16 months now, can you believe it? I even won a K-pop quiz organized by my company's team building. And I'm so fascinated by what I hear about Korea on KBS World Radio Shows that I decided to visit your beautiful country in October 2022. And I finally get to enjoy the beautiful autumn that the radio DJs often talk about. Uh, and I would like to thank KBS World Radio um, for producing all these amazing radio shows so that we international fans not only um, get to enjoy K-pop, but also everything about Korea. Happy 70th birthday, KBS World Radio. Thank you. Bye-bye. 70 years with KBS World Radio. 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday, the 25th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. On the back of a bitter cold snap that gripped the nation over the end of the Lunar New Year holiday, heavy snowfall is forecast for the western and central regions overnight. We'll have the latest updates in news briefing shortly. Over a billion people in the Asia-Pacific region are facing food insecurity, according to UN agencies. We discuss the growing crisis with the Korea Office Director of the World Food Programme for our in-depth today. And then coming up on Korea Book Club, we discuss a novel published last year that has been in the spotlight after being recommended by former President Moon Jae-in. Let's begin Korea 24. As the Lunar New Year holidays wrapped up, Koreans were greeted by freezing weather conditions. This came at a time when there are growing concerns and complaints over surging heating bills. For more on this story and the rest of the day's headlines, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. So piercing cold weather has continued into Wednesday, the first workday for Koreans this week. So I'm sure it added to the dread of returning to work. Cold wave alerts were issued across the nation. And in fact, snow is in the forecast as well. Can you tell us more? Well, temperatures in most inland areas fell by up to 10 degrees Celsius from a day earlier to around minus 15 on Wednesday morning. In Cheran, Gangwon province, the mercury plunged as far as 21.2 degrees below zero. The wind chill temperature is unimaginable. An 80-meter wide, 3-meter high 
Chiktang waterfall frozen into an ice wall. Hantan River appears frozen solid, so it was quite a sight. Those driving back from visiting their relatives had trouble starting their cars with the batteries impacted by the freezing weather. And the morning low in the capital slipped to below minus 17 and wind chill temperatures falling to minus 23. Afternoon highs did inch up compared to Tuesday, though. In fact, with the cold snap gripping the nation, more than 30 people visited hospital emergency rooms for hypothermia or frostbite on Tuesday, a rare sight here in Korea. Right, but not surprising if you experienced a bitter uh, wintry cold weather conditions. Mm. According to the KDCA, in terms of emergency responses to reports of cold-induced illnesses, 32 patients visited ERs on Tuesday with one dead. A total of 312 visited ERs for illnesses caused by low temperatures since December 1st with 11 deaths, a sharp rise from the previous winter, and 213 were male patients, more than double the number of female patients there. 73 people, or 23.4%, were age 80 or older. Meanwhile, the central region is forecast to be hit by heavy snowfall. That's going into Thursday as well. Can you update us on this? Well, snowfall is expected in central Chungcheng, southern Chola regions, as well as the southernmost Jeju Island from Friday afternoon. The cold snap is expected to let up briefly on Thursday before sweeping across the nation again on Friday afternoon. According to the KMA, the western continental's anticyclone that caused the cold wave will begin to migrate towards the southeast, bringing in southwesterly warm air to create snow and clouds. The agency issued advanced heavy snow notices for Seoul, the surrounding capital region, and the western parts of South Chungcheng province with up to a maximum of 10 centimeters forecast between Thursday and Friday in terms of snow piling up. Now, in related news, uh, the brutal cold wave comes at a time when gas rates are spiking and many households are going to be fearful of checking their next gas bill. Can you tell us uh, what the situation is? Well, China's spiking heating costs are putting further strain on household finances there. According to the Korea City Gas Association, Wednesday, the retail price of gas in Seoul this month stood at 19.691 per 1 megajoule, up 38.4% on year. The retail price is set by individual cities and provinces based on the wholesale price determined by the Korea Gas Corporation, which imports liquefied natural gas. The wholesale price of gas for household use went up on four occasions last year, resulting in a 42% spike. Key contributing factors include global energy crisis caused by the war in Ukraine, which pushed South Korea's LNG import prices to a record high of over $56 billion. Meanwhile, rival political parties are blaming each other for the surge in heating bills, and that's especially because something uh, this is something that has become a key livelihood issue and therefore a political issue as well. Definitely. there. The main opposition bloc criticized the UN administration, pointing out the series of public utility fee hikes carried out under its watch. In a Supreme Council meeting on Wednesday, the Democratic Party cited government incompetence as the cause. A DP chief Lee Jae-myung said that vulnerable citizens were struggling with expensive electricity and gas bills and called on the government to increase the budget for energy vouchers. The ruling People Power Party said the increase in gas rates was suppressed during the Moon administration while also pursuing its nuclear phase-off policy. The PPP argued that what they see as misguided energy policies of the past are now taking a toll. They also accused the opposition camp of lying and misleading the public as well as politicizing the issue. Okay, let's turn to some other headlines now. A group of UN agencies released a joint annual report assessing that a convergence of factors, including the COVID-19 pandemic, the Ukraine war uh, and other 
factors have forced over a billion people in the Asia Pacific to struggle with food insecurity and malnutrition. Can you tell us more about this report? Right, a most concerning reality for us, for UN agencies, including the Food and Agriculture Organization and the World Food Program, published the annual report on Tuesday. It shows that in 2021, in the Asia Pacific, an estimated 1.05 billion people in the region suffered from moderate or severe food insecurity. Among them, 396 million were undernourished, nearly 75 million children younger than five were stunted, amounting to half of the world's total. Poor diet quality also caused a rise in obesity among children in the region, something that can have a major economic impact by reducing productivity and life expectancy while increasing disability and health care costs. The pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and inflation pushed up the average cost of a healthy diet in the Asia-Pacific to nearly $4 a day, considered unaffordable for 1.9 billion people, or 44.5% of the region's population. The FAO food price index, which peaked following the outbreak of the Ukraine war has declined but still remains 28% higher than the 2020 levels. The agency forecasts food import bills to hit a new record of $1.94 trillion this year. Rapid urbanization in the region could further exacerbate the crisis. Yes, we'll be discussing more about the global food insecurity issue in our in-depth today with the head of the uh, career office of the World Food Programme. That's coming up shortly after this uh, news briefing. In other news, a former ruling People Power Party lawmaker, Na Gyeongwon, announced that she will not run for party leadership in March following a public round with the presidential office. Can you tell us more? Well, at a press conference on Wednesday, Na said she will courageously put down the leadership bid if that could mitigate public concerns over an internal divide and confusion within the party and help bring harmony and unity. Na's emphatic use of the word courageously appears to highlight willingness to embrace how the decision can potentially negatively impact her political career. She urged the party to use the opportunity while in power to restore public livelihoods and correct constitutional order. The four-term lawmaker wished the party and the UN administration success. Anna is a leading contender, recently had a run-in with the top office. She suggested policy incentives for boosting birth rate, adopting a policy similar to that of Hungary, where couples in Mary can take out loans of up to 40 million won that can be written off when they have three children. The top office rebuffed the proposal, claiming it did not align with the government's direction. The top office fired now from two posts, the committee vice chair, the presidential population committee, and the climate ambassador. The presidential office is widely believed to support PPP lawmaker Kim Gi-hyun as the new party leader. And finally, the former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has claimed that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un told him that he needs the U.S. military in South Korea in order to protect, in order to protect himself from China. Some unexpected remarks. Can you tell us more? Well, Pompeo had his memoir titled Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love, which was released on Tuesday. In it, he described a conversation with Kim during his first trip to Pyongyang on March 30th, 2018, ahead of the summit held three months later. He claims to have told Kim that the Chinese Communist Party has consistently told Washington that the regime's leader would be thrilled if U.S. forces Korea withdraws from South Korea. Kim said the Chinese are liars. Pompeo quoted Kim as saying that he needs the USFK to protect himself from the Chinese party. And the Beijing needs the U.S. forces to withdraw to handle the Korean peninsula like Tibet and Xinjiang. Based on his conversation with Kim, Pompeo wrote that he came to believe that Kim would not care if the U.S. bolstered its missile and ground troops capacity on the Korean peninsula. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you next week.
Last week, some of the top political, business and community leaders gathered in Davos, Switzerland for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. The issue of global food security was among the agenda items that were covered. Participants discussed the close links between the climate crisis, nature's collapse and the energy transition on global food security, but also how war and conflict ongoing in different areas of the world are leaving billions of people living without enough food. To talk about what was discussed and the food crisis in 2023, we have the director of the World Food Programme's Korea office with us. Marianne Yoon has joined us now in the studio. Ms Yoon, hello and welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me again, Jang Ho. Before we talk about the issues that were perhaps discussed at the recent uh, World Economic Forum event, can you first talk us a little bit about the achievements uh, by the WFP this year, uh, last year? Sorry, What sort of a year was it for the WFP in 2022? 2022 was certainly a year of um, many records being broken and um, not many of them to be proud of, to be honest with you. Uh, we do know that the uh, the the war breaking out in in Ukraine in early 2022 was a significant game changer at the globe on for global food insecurity, which was already tough to begin with. Um, so for the World Food Program, 2022 was uh, was unprecedented in on on many levels in terms of global needs. It was unprecedented uh, in terms of uh, how much we were able to deliver. It was unprecedented. Um, for instance, we we through the generosity of many of our donors, we were able to raise 14 billion dollars. Um, that was just over half of what we uh, had appealed for for the year. Um, and with that uh, generous uh, level of uh, contributions, we were able to reach 140 million people around the world. Um, on both fronts, it's we've never we've never achieved that mm. scale of uh, of response before. But but it's a reflection of of how staggering uh, food insecurity is at the moment. How many more people are being affected by hunger, and really on the precipice of of famine. Um, it really isn't something to celebrate, but re- the, the fact that we were able to to respond and scale up uh, as much as we were able to do um, is is really a, a testament to how how uh, our donors and our partners have all rallied and, and uni- united, recognizing uh, that this is a this is an issue for for global mankind really. So unprecedented levels of uh, contributions from around the world, but you said it's only still just over 50% of what uh, the WFP was asking for. That's correct. We were asking for $22 billion in order to reach all 160 million uh, intended beneficiaries for, for our programs. Um, we were able to reach $160 million, uh, because uh, we fell short of, of what we needed. But it was still very, uh, very impressive. Sure, that definitely shows the scale of the issue uh, at hand. Uh, South Korea was one of the countries that also uh, stepped up uh, in donations in 2022 and in fact uh, became the 10th largest donor country uh, to the WFP. It contributed more than 100 million US dollars. Uh, what do you make of this achievement by uh, South Korea? Um, I mean, as a South Korean myself, I am immensely proud of my government. Uh, first of all, you know, it was 60 odd years ago when we were among the poorest nation in the country uh, on the receiving end of uh, assistance. Um, you know, in a single generation, look what we've achieved. And um, 
you know, for the Republic of Korea to to make it in the top 10 donor ranking for the World Food Programme, and that's just one UN agency, it really is um, is a, a, an incredibly impressive achievement. Um, and I'd, I, and uh, it's, note, it, it's worth noting that this assistance isn't coming just from one channel of the government. It's coming for, from uh, the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs. Uh, it's also coming from the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Um, and also in strong partnership with... Um, with uh, the um, Korea International Cooperation, COICA, uh, with whom well, the World Food Programme is working hand-in-hand uh, hand in many, many countries uh, around the world, including Africa and, uh, and Asia. Um, you know, there's also um, the National Assembly, members of parliament, uh, uh, you know, more than 30 uh, members of parliament, including the, the speaker himself, um, attended a, a, a rallying call to action in, in response to unprecedented, the, the unprecedented food insecurity around the world when our executive director, Dave, Mr. David Beasley, was visiting in July last year. Um, and to mention um, uh, the visit of Mr. Beasley, it was during that time that our national hero, Sonung Min, became our global uh, uh, goodwill ambassador. And uh, at the national level, we have uh, also a very wonderful advocate, Chef Tony, Yu Hyun-su, Chef Anim, um, uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that we have these uh, voices, these influential voices um, in, in Korean voices, uh, really, um, you know, lending support to the work uh, and the mandate of WFP, it's really, um, it's really so inspirational. Um, we've also had a, a, a private sector company come forward for, uh, with an amazing uh, record-breaking uh, contribution, single contribution from a South Korean company to the World Food Programme for our assistance in Ukraine. And there are many more uh, achievements that I could, I could uh, speak about. But um, this year... Uh, marks the 60th anniversary for the World Food Programme and the Republic of Korea's partnership and, mm. and cooperation. So it is a meaningful, uh, a meaningful achievement for us to reflect on today. Sure. So another historic milestone in uh, South Korea's journey from recipient to uh, donor to the World Food Programme. And it's uh, certainly there's a lot, it seems, that South Korean people uh, can be proud of. Uh, looking back at the overall situation, though, and despite uh, many of the achievements uh, we have talked about, there are lingering issues that remain, right? Uh, new risks uh, that perhaps we should be looking out for? I, I think it was just under a year ago when I was last here on, mm. your, on your show. And at that time, I was um, speaking about uh, 276-odd million people around the world who were who were facing acute food insecurity so less than a year um, on that number has has uh, has increased to 349 million um, so within a space of a year or so um, you know the the numbers are spiking at a pace that we have never seen before and if you compare it to pre-pandemic levels that's about 200 million people more uh, um, who are who are facing hunger and food insecurity? Now, last year, especially after the Ukraine war broke out, which really, as you know, disrupted um, global supply chain mm. across many fronts. Um, last year, our concern was on the availability, uh, sorry, on the affordability of food. 
the food prices were rising, uh, the cost of ship, shipping and supply chain was disrupting, uh, you know, normal trade and movement uh, of, of food and other commodities across the world. Um, and this was af- affecting, especially the countries that are, um, you know, the developing countries where we have a lot of our projects um, uh, and where we operate. A lot of these countries were finding it very difficult to source the food that they need. Uh, what we're now looking at is is a, a potential crisis affecting food availability. This is very concerning because the price of food may have stabilized somewhat mm. in the past few months. But if you look at the cost of fertilizers, uh, this the, since June of mid-2020, the cost of fertilizers has increased by about 184 fault. I mean, it's it's difficult even to wrap your head around uh, these figures. Um, and and so the disruption on fertilizers is having a compounding effect on production, uh, especially in, in developing countries that rely even more on their own domestic agriculture sector. And so our concern in 2023 is really about uh, production levels and food uh, availability, which is uh, which is a a major concern for us. Right, so rising prices having knock-on effects uh, perhaps uh, that were hard to foresee as well, the extent of it anyway. On that note, let's turn to the World Economic Forum now, uh, which was held last week. As always, it's a high-profile event. Uh, many issues are discussed, but uh, one of the issues uh, was food security. That was a major talking point. Can you tell us uh, what was discussed during the event last week? As as always, the World Economic Forum is is a, a melting pot for bringing um, uh, you know all different sectors and and major and minor stakeholders together around uh, you know various global issues. And so it it was it's very uh, meaningful that food security was was one of those uh, you know top agendas uh, that came out of the forum. Uh, the World Food Program. Uh, engages in the in 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 this forum on a yearly basis um and again this year we were we were we were uh, no different um because the fact that we have some 349 million people around the world facing food insecurity this is a level we've never seen before uh, uh ever and and this is across something like 79 countries it's it's an issue for everyone and so it is it it's good that it came out in the World Economic Forum because mm. that is where such an issue does belong, um, and and it's a it's a conversation that transcends the public and the private sector because in order to come up with a solution to even tackle that immediate problem, never mind mitigate it, getting even worse, um, it requires um, really the, the 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 uniting of of uh, governments of companies of uh, um, academia of think tanks of you know uh, all these stakeholders because you know the world is facing not only um, increasing conflict um, it's still reeling and recovering from the impact of covid mm. uh, it's 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 battling with uh, um, inflation and economic uh, impact but what is really at our doorstep is the climate emergency. And that right. requires uh, the concerted effort of all, um, both individuals and, uh, and, and nations. And so it was apt that world, uh, food insecurity was, was among the top agendas of the World Economic Forum. Right. The climate issue, it 
affects, it's all interlinked at this point. And that is, of course, another issue that was uh, high on the agenda at uh, Davos. Uh, from what was discussed, what perhaps key points stood out for you? Were there anything uh, that uh, you saw from the event that was discussed uh, that you would like to highlight? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to the climate emergency, the fact that we have stopped talking about climate change and now we're talking about climate catastrophe already facing us and facing mankind is is in itself a very big um, change in per- perception uh, to, to, to what is facing the mm. international community. Um, and, you know, it's not just only... It's, it's no longer just one of many different factors that are behind rising food insecurity. It is a, a, an existential issue facing all, the, you know, the whole world. And it knows no borders. Mm. So, um, so I think um, the, the gravity of what we're, what we're facing, you know, potential extinction and all of that, um, is, is something that is, I think, really hitting home now. In, in terms of the World Food Programme's projects, uh, and what we're doing w- in terms of the cl- climate emergency, more and more we are talking about, and we're getting good uh, good reaction from from our partners, is the need to react faster, sooner, mm. before an emergency hits. So being able to anticipate and and provide assistance even before um, communities and and uh, you know nations are actually affected by some kind of a climate crisis. So this means um, working on early warning systems. Um, educating, you know, building capacity on the ground of different uh, first responders, including the people who are most vulnerable when a climate emergency hits. So I think really advancing the the, the operational um, discourse into not responding to an emergency, but actually anticipating an emergency. I think we're getting good traction in terms of uh, that that evolving narrative. This situation comes, though, however, amid. Uh the economic situation, which is not rosy for the world, the IMF uh, has warned that a third of the global economy will be in recession uh, this year. So it's a challenging time for all, despite that uh, concerning forecast, though, as well as uh, domestic challenges for a lot of countries, I'm sure. How important is it that we continue to give our attention and support to uh, mitigating global hunger? What message might you have for our listeners? As I mentioned earlier, um, Tango, you know, the world is so connected. You know, what happens on one side of the globe will affect the other side of the globe too. Our supply chain, for instance, is all connected. Um, if left unchecked, things like the climate uh, emergency, climate crisis, uh, conflict, you know, all lead to destabilization. Destabilization means population movement. People will move. If their lives are at risk and if they're vulnerable, they will move. So that problem will not stay somewhere else. It will come. It can potentially come to our doorstep, like we we have seen happening in Europe uh, for for many years. And so, um, so these are issues that 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 the world needs to recognize and deal with together. Um, and. You're right. There are many countries facing uh, recession, rising food prices. You know, our country is one of them. Um, the number of countries facing increasing domestic food price increases has almost doubled in you know in a year. So it's not to say that um, it's not to say that we don't recognize that there is you know challenges and hardship across the across the board. But if we don't work together, and we, if we don't work on two fronts. 
one is saving the lives that are already affected and second is to actually protect and build up the resilience of those who are actually next in line, what will end up happening is that the world will continue to respond uh, in a kind of firefighting mode. And the Republic of Korea, as an OECD member um, and a, a growing champion for food insecurity and, and, and these global issues, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to rise up to that task at some point. I think that message of interconnected uh, world, I think, is an important one. To, uh, we have to help others to help ourselves as well, essentially, in the long run. OK, we'll have to leave it there. We've run out of time. So uh, we've been speaking with Marianne Yun, Director of the World Food Programme's Korea Office. Thank you once again for coming in today. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index jumped 33.31 points or 1.39% on Wednesday to close the day at 2,428.57. The tech-heavy Cossack also rose, gaining 14.38 points or 2% to end the first working day after the Lunar New Year holiday at 732.35. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 3.81 against the dollar to close at 1,231.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we round up some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you here. Yes, I hope you had a good Lunar New Year break. Happy belated Lunar New Year. Indeed. Okay. So what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll find out what the police found in its probe into a first responder accused of causing a car accident that led to a pregnant woman becoming paraplegic. We'll also talk about the South Korean romantic thriller Decision to Leave, failing to win a nomination for this year's Academy Awards. Finally, we'll learn why the doomsday clock was moved to its highest level on Tuesday. Okay, let's start with that first story then. That sounds rather distressing. Can you tell us more? Right. We have an update on a case involving a first responder who was charged with causing a car accident a few months ago. Back in November last year, police booked the first responder for causing a pregnant woman to become paralyzed from the waist down after the ambulance they were driving crashed into a road barrier. Many in Korea are reading about the latest news today as authorities finally have answers to the cause of the crash. The Ansan Sangnok police station in Gyeonggi province revealed on Tuesday that it plans to hand over the case to the prosecution. Right, this was a trending story in Korea last November mm-hmm. with many people wanting to find out how the crash occurred. So then, what caused the accident? What did the investigation find? So police found that the first responder had passed out behind the wheel due to a condition called vasovagal syncope. The condition causes people to pass out after the body's normal ability to control blood pressure fails to function properly due to extreme physical or mental stress. Police also found that the driver had not broken the speed limit at the time of the accident. The first responder was transporting the woman and her husband after she showed signs of going into labor. Wow, so that sounds like a 
terrible accident for all it involves. Indeed. What about the baby? Was the woman able to deliver the baby safely? Fortunately, yes, she was through a C-section. However, she is still in the hospital to treat paraplegia. Her husband, on his part, suffered a shoulder fracture from the crash. Police had requested a medical checkup of the driver after they testified that they felt sick in the stomach before the crash and lost consciousness during the accident. Police have concluded that the first responder's testimony is true after having looked into multiple possibilities, such as the driver was looking at their cell phone or fell asleep while driving. Right, so it wasn't any sort of negligence. And thankfully for the driver, the truth has been found. I'm sure mm-hmm. uh, the driver would have been very distressed over this incident as well. But uh, as we said, it's just a, a very unfortunate accident all right. around. We certainly hope the woman recovers in the meantime as well. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, move on to the next story now. What do you have for us? It's that time of the year when we get to find out which actor, director or movie is nominated for one of the world's biggest trophies for film, the Oscars. Mm. You can get a general idea of what movies to expect based on nominations from other big awards ceremonies such as the Golden Globes. But there was one big surprise this year. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences unveiled on Tuesday the final list of nominees for the 95th Academy Awards in 10 categories, including documentary feature, international feature, and documentary short film. One notable snub is director Park Chan-wook's romantic thriller Decision to Leave, which failed to win a nomination in the Best International film, uh, Feature Film category. In December, Decision to Leave was shortlisted in this category for the 2023 Oscars, along with 14 other films, but it has now failed to make the final list of five nominees. Yes, uh, this has been a big disappointment for fans of Korean cinema who were hoping that the film would become the second Korean film, of course, to win an Oscar after Parasite. Indeed, at the 92nd Academy in 2020, director Bong Joon-ho's Parasite had won the Best International Feature Film Award, as well as three others, including Best Picture, becoming the first South Korean-made film to win an Oscar. Decision to Leave, which won the Best Director Prize at last year's Cannes Film Festival, secured a nomination for Best Foreign Language Film at the 2023 Critics' Choice Award and the 2023 Golden Gloves, but failed to win either. The film drew new nearly 1.9 million moviegoers here in South Korea since it was released at the end of June last year. Yeah, sadly, it wasn't to be. But uh, for the film industry in general, 2022 was a a huge year around the world, really. There was essentially a revival of sorts following the COVID-19 pandemic, which saw uh, big budget blockbusters attracting audiences back to movie theatres, such as the Avatar sequel, (laughs) Marvel movies and more, but also smaller films doing very well as well, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. The comedy drama Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shaynard, secured 11 nominations at this year's Oscars, including Best Picture. All Quiet on the Western Front and the Banshees of Inisherin followed with nine nominations each. The 95th Academy Awards will be held on March 12th at the Dolby Theatre in Los Angeles. Right, and the fact that a small independent film like Everything Everywhere All at Once has uh, been so successful has been a cause of much celebration for uh, right. film fans. So we'll see if it can take home the big prizes, though, in March. Yes. Let's move on to our final story for today. What else has been trending?
The doomsday clock, the symbolic measure of how close we are to global catastrophe, was moved up to 90 seconds before midnight. The bulletin of the atomic scientists unveiled the 10-second move toward a metaphorical doomsday on Tuesday. This is the closest the clock's hands have been to midnight. The bulletin said it decided to reset the hand largely, though not exclusively, because of the mounting dangers of the war in Ukraine. Yes, before you go further, can you tell us some more about the ominously sounding doomsday clock? So on the BAS website, the doomsday clock is described as a design that warns the public about how close we are to destroying our world with dangerous technologies of our our own making. The clock is also a symbol to remind the human race of the need to address man-made problems that could cause our extinction. The Chicago-based BAS created the clock in 1947 when nuclear weapons became the greatest danger to humanity. The bulletin also began taking into consideration possible catastrophic disruptions from climate change from 2007. The bulletin was founded in 1945 by Albert Einstein and scientists who helped develop the first atomic weapons in the Manhattan Project. Okay, and how many times has the clock been reset? A total of 25 times. It was last reset to 100 seconds to midnight in 2020. BAS President Rachel Bronson said, We are living in a time of unprecedented danger, and the doomsday clock time reflects that reality, adding that it's a decision our experts do not take lightly. To turn back the clock, the BAS president has urged the U.S. government, NATO leaders, and Ukraine to explore all solutions to the war through dialogue. Indeed, even if it's not to turn back that clock, uh, that is a sentiment I think we can all get behind. Right. OK, we'll wrap it up there for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. It's time now for our weekly segment, Career Book Club, where we delve into the world of Korean literature. And as it's the last Wednesday of the month, it's our special monthly edition of the club, where we take a look at a more recent bestseller or notable work that has not yet been translated into English to get a more current view of the literary trends in Korea today. And we do that with the help of literary translator Beth Eun-hee-hong, who has joined us now in the studio Beth, hello. It's great to see you for the first time this year as well. Yeah, Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. I hope you had a good start to the year. You too. Okay, so what have you brought for us for the first book of 2023? So the book we're discussing today is 아버지의 해방일지 by 정지아, published in September 2022 by 장비. Okay, so 아버지의 해방일지. If we were to translate that, I guess it would be something like a my father's uh, liberation notes, something like that? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's a very recent book indeed, only published in September last year. Can you tell us more? What's the book about? So the book is told from the perspective of a woman named Ari, whose father, Go Sang-uk, has passed away and unfolds as she prepares and holds a three-day funeral for him in the town that they live in. The interesting twist here is that her father is a Baltisan, which is a kind of Koreanized version of the word partisan, The word refers to communist or socialist armed guerrillas who took part in anti-Japanese armed struggles during the Japanese colonial era and then for Korean independence after the Korean War. 
In the book, Ko Sang-wook was a socialist Pachisan fighter from 1948 to 1952 who hid out in Jirisan, Jiri Mountain, following the Yeosu Suncheon uprising. Right, yes. yes. So there is a historical and political backdrop to this story then. Beth, for those who are not familiar with Korea's turbulent modern history, can you tell us more about the Yeosun incident? Yes, um, so this placed, uh, this took place in Yeosu um, and Suncheon and various surrounding towns in the South Jolla province from October to November 1948. The rebellion was led by 2,000 left-leaning soldiers based in the Yeosun area who opposed the uh, Sigmanri regime and his government's handling of the Jeju uprising, which occurred in April of 1948. Yes, it was a brutal conflict. Uh, around 3,000 people are said to have died. So that is the uh, dark and politically volatile backdrop to the story. So going back to the book then, what happens to Ari's father? Well, eventually her father was imprisoned in 1974 for his socialist leanings. He served six years in prison and was released in 1980, a time the narrator describes as one in which she grew from an elementary student to a young woman. Yes, Beth, it's widely known that there are autobiographical elements in this work, right? That uh, this is based on the author's own story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what made it um, so compelling for a lot of readers as well. Mm. Um, the author in real life was actually barred from certain jobs due to her father's background as a partisan, something that she resented heavily throughout her life. Mm. So she said that growing up, reading novels about others suffering and eventually writing her own was cathartic for her. And um, as she started teaching children and had her own family, she realized how everyone suffers in their own way. So as a reader, we can really feel this sincerity coming through the prose. Despite the heaviness of the uh, historical context, the voice itself is quite lighthearted because it's coming from a place of wisdom born from experience. Right. And I think we can perhaps see that lightheartedness in the cover of the book as well. It's uh, got a quite a cute illustration, I would say, with a vivid green background. So I think that perhaps, uh, despite some of the darker historical elements of the story, that cover kind of shows the lightness of touch to uh, some of the stories. So going back, uh, can you tell us a bit more about the book? I understand that the story is structured in a specific way. Yeah, um, it's split into roughly four parts. And the first is a story of the father's younger brother, um, and it's the second is about her father's friends in Kure, and the third about the narrator and her father. And the final part is about her father's relationship with her mother. Through, so through the book, we travel back in time, starting from 1948 to 1952, up to the early to mid-1980s and the present day. We find out that Ari's father was the chairman of the Koksong-gun uh, party committee, um, quite a substandard farmer, which was ironic given his ideological leanings that glorified labor, <laughs> and a caretaker of a high-rise apartment in Kure. So although the funeral home is a central setting, the story also encompasses Pannegol and the village of Kure. And we witness through flashbacks and dialogue the various mourners' gratitude, remorse, resentment, and anger that each carry in their hearts toward him. Right, so the funeral is the... Uh main theme here is in as in that's the main setting here so through the various people that come to the funeral throughout the book Ari learns about who her father was beyond his uh, public image and reputation so who were some of the characters that stood out 
So one of the most interesting parts for me actually was um, the part about the narrator and her father. So the character of Ari herself. Mm. Um, Ari reflects on how she grew up listening to her father and mother's stories of ideologically motivated heroism and rhetoric. However, when she eventually grows to resent her parents' dogmatism and the contradictions she sees between their lofty ideals and heroic paths versus their shortcomings and banal disappointments. Mm. And another really striking character was her uncle, um, her father's younger brother, who held on to a really terrible secret his whole life and wound up being a um, reticent alcoholic. It's only at the funeral that we find, find out what really happened and why he resented his older brother so much. So one of the most powerful scenes in the book for me and actually for many people was when the younger brother gets his own liberation at the funeral in which he grieves not only his brother's life, but also his own and um, their father's. Yes, it sounds uh, very powerful. I understand that one of the strengths of this book is its depiction of connections between people from very different backgrounds or ideological inclinations. Can you give us some examples of this? Yeah, um, readers have commented on the surprising diversity of mourners that came to pay their respects at the father's funeral. For example, the father's elementary school friend, Mr. Park, who despite having very different views politically, he was a longtime reader of a conservative newspaper called the Joseon Ilbo, as a case in point. Mm -hmm. Somehow they have maintained their bond over the years. And there's also unexpected characters like um, a half Korean, half Vietnamese 17-year-old girl with bleached blonde hair who used to be the father's smoking buddy um, and actually really was, you know, um, very sad at his passing. Mm. Um, eventually, we see that Ari's father, despite all of his shortcomings, was someone who in some way transcended superficial barriers of class, ideology, and gender, and was a true humanist. And I think this is encapsulated in this phrase that the father says about people. Whenever the narrator asks, how can someone do that? The father responds by saying, it's because they're human. So it seems that there's a, a lot going on here, tackling a lot of themes and ideas and emotions. Uh, what were some themes that stood out for you personally? So maybe the themes that jump out are different for everyone. Mm. Um, but for me, the biggest was about how little we actually know about people closest to us and how death can give us a more complete picture of who they really were. Um, actually, my own father passed away five years ago. So this book made me reflect a lot on my own relationship with him and how I'm still piecing together who he really was as a person beyond my father. And um, another theme um, is fragmented father-daughter relationships between certain generations of Korean society. In the case of Ari and her father, it's exacerbated by the socio-political upheaval of the time. Um, but generational divides are still a major issue in Korean society today, and perhaps a reason why this book resonated so widely across so many age groups. Indeed. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your father Your father first, and it sounds like uh, this work will have touched you in quite a powerful way, and not just yourself. It seems this book has certainly resonated deeply with many readers across various generations recently, especially after the renowned author Yu Ximin and former President Moon Jae-in recommended it as well. Uh, what else do you think made it so popular? Well, as you said, it does help that two very well-known public figures helped bump the book's visibility to the reading public here. Mm. 
That being said, there's also a kind of light, casual voice narrating the story that makes you feel as if you're right there among ordinary characters. So maybe it was also the author's use of Jolla Saturi that helped with this feeling of intimacy. <laughs> right. So the author's uh, Jolla province uh, Saturi or dialect, should we say. Can you tell us more about the author? Uh, on that note, uh, Cheong Jia, can you tell us more? Yeah, so she herself was born in 1965 in Kure, South Jolla province. She majored in creative writing at Chungang University, and she received her master's and doctoral degrees there as well. She debuted in 2004 with the short story collection Happiness, or Hengbok, and she won the 7th Lee Hyo-seok Literary Award in 2006 for Landscape, uh, Pungyeong, and the 14th Han Musok literary award for spring light pumpit in 2008 um, and she also won the 14th kim yujong literary award for how much do we know Urinen Odikaji Alka in 2020 hmm. her debut full-length novel the partisan's daughter was also a very autobiographical novel which was actually banned for 10 years before it was republished in 2005 so we see how she in some ways came full circle back to the subject of her life as a daughter of a guerrilla fighter, albeit in a much more lighthearted tone, which has led to a new generation of Koreans discovering her work. Right, so this work has made a cult quite an impact, it seems. Just to add one more question, do you think this is a work that could work for an international audience as well? There does seem to be a lot of uh, historical context that is important in the story, but do you think it could be a work that becomes uh, translated into English at some point? Yeah, I certainly think so. I think that with the rising popularity of Korean studies, you know, beyond K-pop and K-dramas, a lot of people are now interested in the history of modern Korea. And, you know, uh, these fights for independence and the colonial period are certainly a part of that. So I think I can definitely see this, you know, if it ever gets translated, being part of, you know, a lot of um, you know, syllabi or required readings that could provide some context for, you know, that period in Korea's history. Interesting. Well, it's a work that has had quite an impact already, and I think it would be meaningful for there to be an English translation for international readers to discover as well. We'll see if uh, someone does decide to tackle this uh, important work. OK, we'll wrap it up there. Beth, thank you for introducing us to this book uh, this week. We appreciate it as always. Take care, and uh, we look forward to having you back next month. Thank you. See you next month. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need all in one place on Korea 24. We've come now to the final segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio now. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. OK, so what have you brought for us today? 
I have some news for book lovers. The English language edition of the sci-fi novel Walking Practice by the Korean author Dolki Min will be getting a worldwide release in March. This comes just around a year after the Korean edition of the Rocky author's books hit local shelves. All the information can be found in Hwan Dong-hee's article in the cultural section of the Korea Herald. Yes, so we've uh, commented on the show over the last couple of years of how Korean science fiction literature has been growing in the literary scene in Korea and overseas, and mm. this looks like more evidence of that boom. Uh, so this work is called uh, Walking Practice, as you said. Can you yes. tell us what it's about? Sure. It's about an alien who has been on Earth for 15 years and needs to survive by hunting humans for food to transform itself. The alien uses dating apps to find people. I will warn you that this doesn't seem like a book for children. From reading the article, I could tell that there are adult themes. Mm. This is the author's first novel, and what's interesting is that the rights to the English edition were secured by a New York-based agent before the Korean edition even hit the shelves. The author published the first edition back in 2017 by himself, and a translator received it as a Christmas present. That's when he contacted an agent to let them know about the book. Wow, that certainly sounds like an unexpected way for his uh, debut novel to get a worldwide release. Yes. And quite a feat for the author then. Right. According to the article, the novel expresses a universal story and theme about anyone who's felt like an outsider. It seems like the author used his depression and feeling of loneliness and incorporated them into the story. The book will have its international release on March 14th. Right, it's actually quite a familiar setup, the storyline. The 90s horror film Species uh, <laughs> comes to mind, but clearly there is a more, uh, perhaps a different or more current twist about loneliness and depression in there as well. It sounds fascinating, and I'm already looking forward to having it reviewed for our Korea Book Club segment sometime soon as well. March, you said, right? Yes. Yes, so something to look forward to then. OK, let's move on to our second story. What do you have for us next? Next is Go Dang-wan's article in the national section of the Korea Times. According to the article, Seoul's air quality in 2022 was at its cleanest in over a decade. This comes from the results of an analysis of air quality by the city government's air quality policy division. Right, this sounds like very encouraging news. Can you tell us some more about the findings? The research concluded that the air has been getting cleaner every year since 2019, with 2022 seeing the most outstanding air quality since 2008. The results also found that the levels were most visibly reduced between December and March. This is a time where air pollutants tend to be mostly generated due to energy consumption during the winter. Yes, it's good news for people living in the capital and the city government, I'm sure. Uh, does the article explain what is causing the air to become cleaner? It does. It noted that various pollutant reduction regulations by the city government were a few of the reasons for the change. These measures can be found in various sectors such as public transport, traffic, manufacturing and sanitation. And it looks like the city government is not stopping there. There is a project called Clearer Soul 2030 which is aiming to reach the same air quality levels as other big cities such as London and Paris by 2030. This project includes having fewer vehicles that run on diesel, expanding the city's green traffic zone, and controlling air pollutants from large factories. Hopefully, this city will be able to hit that target. Yes, I also saw that improved air quality over China might have helped. The nation's uh, shutdown of factories and plants amid COVID lockdowns will uh, perhaps have contributed to the cleaner air here in Korea as well. Mm. But on that note, uh, there's no mention of COVID, this pandemic situation, I believe, in the report. Right. Uh, that could be, of course, a contributing factor, as the, the report says, uh, it's been getting cleaner every year, the air in uh, South Korea since 2019. Yes, yeah, so the, so the timing is definitely very similar to exactly. 
indeed. perhaps that is just coincidence. But uh, if the other reasons cited are true, then it's certainly encouraging that efforts by the government have contributed as it means that we can control the fine dust pollution if we act. It would be uh, interesting to see if more information can back that up. OK, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we bring our show to a close today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of a cold snap. Ensure to keep your home warm, especially if you have children, elderly family members or patients living with you. Those who have high blood pressure or weak heart conditions must warm up exposed parts of their bodies, especially their heads. If you experience extreme chills, fatigue, slurred speech, loss of memory or sense of direction, visit a hospital immediately as these are symptoms of hypothermia. If you experience numbness or paleness in your hands, feet, ears, nose or any tip of your body, this could be frostbite. Take a warm shower. If the symptoms persist, go to the hospital. If you plan on exercising, make sure you stretch sufficiently to avoid injuring your joints. If you plan on leaving your house empty for a long time, leave your taps running slightly to prevent the pipes from freezing. Please check out our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures. KBS World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to One Fine Day with Lena Park and join the K-pop diva for two fine hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-woo helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow when you're driving in snowy conditions. On days with heavy snowfall, take extra caution on sloping lanes as you could easily lose control of your vehicle. On icy roads, refrain from speeding as slippery road conditions make it harder to steer or stop the wheels. 
ensure you keep a wider distance with the car ahead of you as it takes longer to slow down. Drivers are also advised to use chains and other equipment to keep their tyres from slipping. If you don't have the proper equipment, spray sand or soil on the tyres and start off in second gear. When travelling to areas with extreme snowfall, make sure you check the road and traffic conditions before setting off. When stranded in heavy snow, call 119 for assistance. Thank you.